Amen. It's a wonderful sound about our exalted God. Well, we're going to turn to our first reading, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. We'll have two readings. First, Philippians 2, 1 to 13, and then later before the sermon, we'll be looking at Psalm 113. So if you'll turn with me to your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 to 13. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, we're going to continue singing to God's praise. We're going to sing of the wonder of our wonderful God who is so mighty and yet cares for his creatures. And Psalm 8 really captures that so exactly. Psalm 8 where David says, if I turn to it. David says, he speaks about regarding the heavens that God has made, just like we've been talking about with the kids. And he says in verse 4, I ask myself, what then is man? that you should give him thought, or the Son of Man, that you to him such gracious care have brought. Let's sing Psalm 8, verses 1 to 5, and sing psalms to God's praise. In all the earth, O Lord, our Lord, Yeah. 
you'll turn with me now to Psalm 113. Psalm 113. We'll be reading the whole psalm. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Well, have you ever wondered why we sing when we gather on a Sunday? Or to make the question more precise, why do we sing songs of praise to God? Have you ever wondered that? Those of you who've been in church all your life might not find it strange, but imagine someone walking into church for the first time. And they come into church and they sit down and people all start spontaneously singing together. It's not often that that happens. Maybe the closest comparison in some ways of a group of people who don't know each other with different interests and musical abilities gathering to sing The closest thing you might find is a football stadium. What makes these people gather and sing together is the question they would be asking. And if they were to start coming along weekly, they'd realize there's a theme to everything that we're singing. The God of the Bible. So why do Christians sing? Those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, the question we need to ask ourselves is why, why do we sing? It's a good question to ask ourselves. Those of you who are maybe listening in online or here in person who wouldn't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus and still thinking through the claims of the Bible, well, a good question for you to ask is, well, why should I join in? Why should I make these words my own? Why should we sing praise to God? That's the question that the writer of this psalm is seeking to answer this morning. See, Psalm 113 is part of a collection of psalms that begin or end with the phrase, um, with praise the Lord, as we have it in our Bibles. Um, They're known as the Hallel Psalms, because um, Hebrew for uh, praise the Lord is hallelujah. That's where we get our word in English, hallelujah. Anyway, this psalm was written to be part of the worship of the, uh, part of the worship of ancient Israel. And the aim of these psalms was to move people's hearts to praise God. Not just give them words to sing, but to move their hearts to want to praise God. That's the aim of our psalmist, and that's the aim of um, that's our aim this morning. That we, our hearts will be moved as we study this psalm to want to praise the Lord. And we're going to look at this psalm under three short points. First, praise the Lord for He is worthy of praise. And first, a brief note on singing, because Psalm 113 is a song, isn't it? And so our first question must be: Why do we sing it? Why don't we just chant it? Why, why, do, why don't we just read it? What's so special about singing? Why was this written to be sung? And in short, singing, we sing because singing not only expresses the truth, 
It also excites our emotions to feel the truth. Very often in our Christian life, our feelings won't align with the truth, will they? And we know that God's word will tell us to rejoice in the Lord. And yet, depending on our circumstances, we might think, oh, I just don't feel like that. In fact, you might be here this morning and the last thing you want to do is sing. You might just feel like drudgery. You might just feel like the words, we're just, you're just saying the words as rote and they don't feel and mean anything. Our psalmist this morning, I think, would say, try to do it anyway. Try to sing anyway. Because singing is something that's quite special. Singing helps to focus our minds. It moves our hearts and it can make dry truths come to life. For example, um, the very act of singing, praise God, my soul with all my heart, that helps to move our souls, move our hearts, to want to praise God with all our hearts. We might not feel like that at the beginning, but as we sing, it moves our hearts. Or the very act of singing, oh my God, have mercy on me, in your steadfast love I pray. So we sing through Psalm 51 with David, confessing our sins. It helps us to call to mind our sins, our wrongs doing. It helps to put words to the confessions of our hearts. So singing is powerful. So just briefly, can I encourage you all to sing, even when you don't feel like it, even especially when you don't feel like it. These psalms were written to move our hearts, to help us to feel what God wants us to feel as we sing, as we read his word. So that's why we sing. But why sing praise to God? Why sing praise to God? Well, in short, we praise God because he's worthy of all praise. We praise things that we think are great or things that are, or people who have done great things, don't we? I don't know if you remember um, a few weeks back, maybe it's over a month now, um, that England made history by winning the first major women's tournament in the Euros final. And equally historic, though, were the crowds that gathered to watch. There were 81,192 people packed into the Wembley Stadium. And there was a record of 17.9 million people watching from their living rooms. On top of that, there was a three-day party in Trafalgar Square celebrating their victory. Or victory, their, their win, I guess. The size of the crowds cheering in was monumentous because it showed that women's football really for the first time in the UK was being taken seriously it showed that it was something worthy to be praised the sides of the crowds showed that well in Psalm 113 we see that God is worthy to be praised because of the size of the party do you notice first of all we have this part the party would clearly break the limits of Trafalgar Square because everyone was invited look with me at verse 1 we're told praise the Lord Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Now, we don't have a plural you in English. I think there is in Gaelic. I'm still learning. But um, if you we were maybe from the American South, this, this verse will be translated as, Y'all praise the Lord. Every one of those commands to praise is a plural. It's inviting and calling everyone to join in God's praise. Every person from every nation, male and female, no one is being excluded. Everyone is invited. To join in. And God isn't just to be praised by Christians. As the creator of the world, as we saw with the kids, He's the one who deserves the praise of every one of His creatures that He made. And second, this isn't a three day party. God is to be praised through all time. Do you see that in verse 2? Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist is clearly thinking bigger than just singing a few songs on a Sunday, isn't he? 
even bigger than a three-day party in Trafalgar Square. God is so glorious that the psalmist says he's worthy of unending praise. Praise that happens every day of the week, every minute of our lives. Whether we're singing or not, God is worthy of this kind of praise. Third, this isn't just um, in one place. This is a party in the whole earth, you might say. Verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Now that could be talking about time again, but those who know Hebrew much better than me say it's probably talking about um, space. So from the place where the sun rises, every country that the sun touches on its journey around the earth, every place that it touches, every person that the heat of the sun hits, they, they should be singing God's praise. They're invited to sing God's praise. So all people, all time, all places, everyone is called to join in praising God. And that's because of who's at the center of it. Do you notice the words that are repeated again and again in those first four lines? Praise the Lord. Praise those servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. You can imagine as this was sung, it would sound like a chant of the crowds saying this name again and again. The Lord. It's, that's God's name. The Lord in capital letters in our Bible as house translators represent Yahweh, um, the name, God's name in Hebrew. And it's his personal name. It's the Lord's covenant name that he gave to his people so that they could have relationship with him, so that they could call on him. And it's a name that's loaded with meaning. So if I say Noah, the first thing you think is he built the ark, probably. If I say Hadrian, you think he built a wall. If I say Boris, I don't know what you'd say. I'll let you fill in the blanks. If you said Yahweh to an Israelite, the Lord, well, they would tell you all about what God has done. And they would tell you why he's worthy of praise, because of all these things. And that's what the psalmist does next, if you notice, in verses 4 to 9. We're on to our second point. Praise the Lord, for he is highly exalted, yet stoops low. First, let's see how he's exalted. Do you notice all the high up language in verses 4 to 6? So the Lord is high above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Now God isn't a physical being, and so these verses are, are a metaphor, not telling us God's location, but his status. Ancient kings and rulers would have showed their status by sticking their throne high up on lots of steps. And you'll see in kind of um, the Aztecs and Mayans, um, Babylonians, Egyptians, they make big stepped pyramids because to show the status of their god or the king who's being buried or who is on top of there. Um, these steps are just for being able to look at. This is, these steps aren't anything to do with status, of course. But the psalmist is using this as high up imagery to show us the kind of God we have. To show us that he is exalted. To show us that he's worthy of praise in that way. His throne is higher than the heavens. That is the sky. God is exalted in his royal power. He has therefore control and authority over all things. It's what theologians refer to as God being transcendent. He's tra he transcends all of this physical creation. He's above it in that way. And that's something we read from the very first pages of the Bible, isn't it? 
God, without any effort, just calls creation into existence. He speaks and everything is. We read in Psalm 33 verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their host. We looked at God's transcendence with the children, didn't we? Isaiah describes how God is so big, he can scoop up the waters. It's wonderful imagery. He weighs the mountains. And the lesson in all of that is verse 5. Who is like the Lord our God? He is so exalted that none compare to him. And God's transcendence sets him apart from creation. God isn't like us. We need to recognize that. Jim Lavelle was one of the first um, three astronauts to orbit the moon. Um, and he described how as he was coming around, around the moon and as the earth came into view, earth rise as it was, he could see it through the, um, through the window in the space capsule and he put up his thumb to the earth. Yeah, that's 240,000 miles away and he realized that he could cover everything he ever knew, all the people he cared about, everything that he had known in his existence, he could cover up with his thumb. That's how far it was away. <coughs> That's a bit like God's view in verse 6, isn't it? God looks far down to see us. It's in, in the same passage I read to the, um, to the children in Isaiah. Isaiah compares all the nations. He says they're like a drop in the bucket compared to God. God is highly exalted. There's none as powerful, as great as, as he is. God is our creator. We are creatures. And that's why he's worthy, again, of praise. But he doesn't end there. Our psalmist doesn't just end with God's exaltation, does he? Because God's transcendence doesn't mean that he's distant from creation. That's a deus view of God. A God who creates everything and then me, sets the earth off spinning and just leaves it. That's not the God of the Bible. Rather, our God is one who is exalted and yet present and active in his creation. His authority and his control doesn't mean that there's a disconnect between God and his creation. His authority and his control means that he is active and present in his creation. And we see that in the next few verses. He's the God who stoops low. We see that even in the language of God looking far down. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 8, what is, what is man that you're mindful of him? David realizes his smallness. And wonders that God is actually interested. That God actually looks far down and pays attention to people like you and me. Little us who are smaller than astronauts then. We see that as well in verses 7 to 9. Let me read them again. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. With the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home. Making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The God who looks far down is also the God who stoops low and is intimately involved with our lives. And he doesn't just pay attention to, I don't know, major national politics. He's not the God who only looks at the earth and is like, oh no, oh no, the Queen's died, now I better pay attention. He pays attention to every single one of us. He stoops down, do you notice, to the lowest rung of society, the poor, the needy, the barren, the people that we forget, God notices. 
The homeless man curled up in cardboard boxes by a shop door that we walk past and we don't even realize there's someone there. God knows him intimately inside out. The elderly woman who's shut at home and who sees people only once or twice a week, who's worried, who wonders whether her kids or grandchildren have forgotten about her. God recognizes, God sees her, God knows her. He notices in, um, I grew up in Nepal. Um, I lived there for 12 years. My parents were missionaries there. And in countries like Nepal, there's, um, there's a caste system and some people are deemed untouchable. And I remember walking past um, the rubbish heaps and there were kids raking through the rubbish, looking for bits of plastic and other things that they could recycle. And side by side with the rabid dogs. And God notices that. God notices the people who are deemed less than human in society, in some societies. God sees the woman we see in verse, verse 9 who's been unable to have children. In some countries, you know, just if that's, a, that's, a weight as, that's a weight enough, as it were. That's hard. That's painful. That's a, there's, there's not words that can describe how difficult that is. And on top of that, in some countries, and probably at this time, they would have said that there was something wrong with the woman if she couldn't have children. And yet we see that God notices her. God notices women. You know, despite the progress we've made in society, isn't it wonderful that we have a God who looks down and he sees people not as, he sees people as equally precious and loved by him. God doesn't divide people into a hierarchy, as it were, depending on their, their job or their status or, their, or whether they're male or female. But God doesn't just see, he acts. And that's what I want us to see in our third point. Praise the Lord who raises up. See, verses 6 to 9 contain powerful pictures of God raising up the lowly. He raises the poor and needy and makes them princes. He lifts them up from the ash heap. You know, this is the stuff of Hollywood and Bollywood. This is, think Aladdin or Slumdog Millionaire. We see, this is something though we see that God does all the way through the Bible. He takes Joseph from the dungeons of Egypt and he makes him Pharaoh's right-hand man. He takes David, who's a nobody-watching sheep, and makes him Israel's greatest king. Most iconic of all, perhaps, he takes Israel in slavery in Egypt and makes them a great nation. It's no wonder, then, the next Psalm 114 is all about that. It's all about that raising up and rescuing. He lifts up the barren woman by giving her a home. Again, we see God doing that all over the Bible. Abraham's, think Abraham's wife, Sarah. Jacob's wife, Rebecca. You might know the story of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who um, her husband had two wives and she wasn't able to have kids and, her, and the husband's other wife mocked her and she prayed to the Lord that he would give her a son. God answered her prayer and gave her Samuel. Fast forward, Elizabeth and John the Baptist was born to her. You might say this is kind of what God does. As we look through the Bible, God is a God who consistently raises up the lowly. No wonder the psalmist says, who is like our God? What other God, what other, what other celebrity, what other politician is so exalted and yet at the same time so close to us? None. The rich and famous rarely will mix with poor nobodies. And when they do, they make newspaper headlines. I don't know whether you remember again I think it was about two months back when Prince William was um, helping to, to um, sell some of those big issues. 
And all he had to do was sell a big issue for an hour and he was on the front page of every newspaper. Everyone thought, wow, this is amazing. This never happens. But God did much more than that. The creator of all things became a creature. He became man. You'd think that kind of thing would be breaking news, wouldn't you? You'd think that even you know, the local newspaper would pick up on it. At least it would turn up on the local WhatsApp group. But when God became man, he became a baby. He was born to a virgin out of wedlock. He was, Jesus was born in a shed. And it went further down still. As we read in Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. The highest of high. The exalted above all became the lowest of the low. And he didn't do it to promote a charity. He stooped to raise the lowly, not the physically poor, but the spiritually poor. You see, by nature, we're all spiritually bankrupt. You know, we have nothing good to offer the exalted God. We owe him an infinite debt of worship and praise. As we're, you know, we're called to worship God with every time, every part of our life, all the time, every time. We don't do that. We owe God a debt of praise. But we generally live our lives without reference to him. And very often we deliberately ignore him and go away from his commands. And some of you this morning might feel, might feel very aware of your spiritual poverty. You might, you might feel pretty worthless, in fact. Maybe you're aware of the ways in which you've sinned in the past week. The ways in which you've fallen yet again into the same sin. You've lost your temper and you wish you could take those words back. You've acted selfishly and hurt those you love. I don't know what it is in your heart. Whatever you've done or failed to do. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came for people like you. Jesus came for you. If you recognize your sin. If you recognize that that you need Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The God who is seated on high is the God who stooped down low. And Jesus didn't do that for the rich righteous, of whom there's no one's the rich righteous, by the way. But for sinners who recognize their poverty. In Romans 5 verse 8, Paul writes that God demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's a promise for you if you recognize your spiritual poverty. If you know that you're one of the people who needs Jesus. Then that promise is for you. And you can have assurance that he died in your place. That he came to raise you up. Even as you recognize that he came and stood in your place. There'll be others of you though who don't yet. And who aren't yet ready to admit your spiritual poverty. Maybe it's. Well, maybe because most of us, naturally, we're, we're quite proud. Most of us aren't. Most of us find it difficult. We find it hard to admit that we need God's help. We think that so often that we have something to offer, don't we? Maybe you think of all the good things you did this week, or all the bad things that you could have said, and you could have done, but you didn't do. And you think, actually, I, I'm not helpless. I'm not hopeless. However, just, I mean, I guess to be blunt, if we weren't totally helpless, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. God wouldn't have had to take such extreme measures, as it were, to deal with our sin if we weren't helpless. Can I urge us all to be honest with ourselves? God sees our hearts. 
And it's not just an empty bank vault, it's worse than that. It's a vault that's filled with stolen praise that belongs to God. There's nothing worthy of in there. All our works are tainted. They're all stained by sin. But God can deal with that if we humble ourselves and repent. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the exalted king, became sin for us. If we'll only ask him to take our sin. He paid the debt with his blood shed on the cross. Promises I quoted earlier in 1 John verse 9. Jesus promises that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise that's, that's now and forever if we trust in Jesus. That doesn't just work for one day and then we have to do it again. If we trust in Jesus, he wipes the slate clean. Better than that, Jesus not only pays the debt, he raises us up. He doesn't just wipe it clean. He credits to our account all his righteousness. He gives us the status of children of God. That's what it means for Christ to make himself nothing and raise us up. That's far greater than raising us up from physical poverty. He makes us children of the almighty, exalted God. Why is God worthy of praise by all people, in all time, in all places? Because in Christ Jesus, the exalted God stooped to die in our place. God is worthy to be praised by all people, all time, all places, and he will be. At the end of the Bible, John has a vision. He sees, um, he sees, what, he sees the heavenly throne room. He sees what it'll look like at the end of time. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, John says, he saw that I see a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. And they're all praising Jesus, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. God is worthy to be praised. He will be. He's gathering a people for himself who will praise him. What we have here, what we have in these scattered gatherings throughout Lewis and Scotland and the world are the seeds of his new creation. People he is gathering who will praise and worship him. People who he has raised up to be children of God. That's why we praise God for all that he has done. The question then is, the question I'll leave you with is, will we join in? Will we praise him in song? More than that, will we praise him with our whole lives? With every day, every minute of our lives, wherever we are. Will we offer our lives, offer our hearts, offer every moment of our lives to him in worship and praise? Will we allow him to shape our wants, our desires, our habits, our routines, after what he wants rather than what we want? Will we give ourselves to him in praise? Because he gave himself. us becoming nothing well let's pray and then we'll close by singing Psalm 113 together Heavenly Father we thank you that the exalted God that you the exalted God made yourself nothing humbling yourself in Christ Jesus even to death on the cross Lord as we recognize how great you are Lord it It fills our minds with wonder that you would make yourself nothing for us. Lord, we know that none of us are worthy of that kind of sacrifice. And so we thank you. Lord, we have nothing to give back. Lord, empty with empty hands we bring. Simply to your cross we cling. Lord, help us all to find complete 
assurance and forgiveness at the cross of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to build up your people today. We pray for the kids as well as they they would keep clinging to Jesus. They would always know him as their saviour. We pray that for each one of us as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we read, we looked at Psalm 113. We're now going to sing Psalm 113. I hope that having looked at that will help us to sing it. So let's, Psalm 113, let's sing as we, to God's praise. Oh, praise you, servant of the Lord, sing praises to his holy name. Oh, blessed be the name of God, his praise forevermore proclaim. Fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.